was interesting to me as I prepared to, to speak, I, I knew that I was going to be speaking sometime this fall, but Pastor Lowell had a procedure um, this week and was not going to be able to be here. And so um, Sunday, Beachy asked me if, if it would be possible for me to fill in um, this week. And so I, I said, yeah, um, with, a little, with very little time to prepare. So I, I apologize. I feel a little bit unprepared for two reasons. One, um, I haven't had as much time as I'd like to prepare. And two, I'm talking about a subject matter that I need to hear as much as maybe you do. And so I don't stand up here as an authority on the matter. I simply stand up here as, as a man confessing to you what the Lord is speaking to me and in the hopes that one day um, I live out um, this um, this message that I'm about to give to you today. That video came out again, like I said, about eight years ago. And I remember the first time I saw that video, just how powerful it was to me and how it resonated in me, particularly because of one individual that appears in the video, and that is Scott Harrison from Charity Waters. And about a year prior to that video, I had been at a conference in Atlanta where Scott had been and had shared his story about how he created Charity Waters, which is a nonprofit that um, seeks to provide fresh drinking water for every human on the planet. And I believe I was at a Catalyst conference, I believe is where I was at when he spoke, and um, he shared about his testimony and how he had um, transformed from this um, party planner, and, and he went to these nightclubs in New York, and he was like this big event planner, did all this, and how he had um, just his genesis of going through and, and becoming a photographer and taking pictures for um, an organization that was documenting um, birth defects and, and diseases throughout Africa, and how they were going to then develop caseloads and provide these kids with surgeries and things um, to, to repair some of, maybe they were born with cleft palates and things like that. But what he discovered in his journey, if I'm, if I'm recalling the conversation correctly, is that about 80% of the diseases in Africa are directly related to poor drinking water. And so he thought, you know, if we could simply provide fresh drinking water for every person on the planet... You know, particularly these people here in Africa, we could eliminate 80% of the diseases that these people struggle with. And so he shares about how he, he then transformed his day-to-day -day life and he got out of himself, but he used the gifts and talents that he had to develop this organization and how it was transforming the world. And then this video comes out and I'm, I'm watching this video and... I'm on staff here at church, but um, at this time, Bobby and I are kind of praying through this idea of starting Capstone, this nonprofit that begins to engage and provides opportunities for at-risk kids. And I knew when I watched that video that, that it was radically changing my theology. That this Christianity that I had embraced and I had come to know and love, that, that because of what I was watching, uh, my mind was beginning to change. And, and I want to caution you because I, I don't want you to walk out of here thinking that I'm, I'm trying to give us a legalistic um, approach to the gospel. But I realized in that moment, um, a, a verse from, from scripture, um, from James, came, came hitting home very, very hard. And it's simply this, it says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, 
but does nothing about their physical need, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. And I knew in that moment that the work of my hands had to matter. That what God was speaking to me in that moment, that it's not enough to sit here and claim to be a Christian and claim to be a disciple and then have no evidence of the works that come with that. And I want to, again, I want to caution because I'm, I don't want you to walk out of here saying that you and I have to earn our salvation. That's not what I'm trying to communicate from the stage. All right? I believe that Christ gave himself freely for us while we were still sinners and incapable of doing for ourselves. Christ came and did that for us. But what I am challenging us and going to be challenging us for the next little bit is if that does not produce a measurable response in you, then I'm going to challenge you when you leave here today that you need to ask yourself, have you fully embraced that which what Christ has done for you? Because I'm convinced when I watch something like that, that, that these people saw something and recognized that it's not enough for me to stand here and watch that, but I need to take action. I need to use the gifts and talents that I have and respond. A few months ago when I spoke, I... I knew that I was going to be speaking in the fall and I had kind of left us um, with, with a challenge or with a thought. I didn't intend to um, include it in my message. It actually, um, it actually just kind of leaked out. I'm, I don't really even recall it being much in my notes, but several people had come up afterwards and, and mentioned um, what I had said. Even some of them pushed back a little bit. And so I want to, I want to kind of build the framework of what I'm going to be talking around, about around that today. And I also want you to know that I had no idea, obviously, when I started preparing, again, I've only had about a week of preparation. I had no idea three months ago when we started talking about when I was going to be speaking in the fall, the events that were going to happen. I had no idea about the hurricanes and the shootings and things like that that were going to be happening. And I think that, that I would be doing a disservice to us if I did not speak to some of those issues in the process of this morning. The idea that I challenged us with was this idea about believers, followers, and disciples. And some, some great conversation has come out of that. I've even had a couple of people push back. And so um, while I have an opportunity, I want, to, I want to push back to some of those pushbacks. And I want to I revisit what I had said. And so if you'll recall, I, I challenged us that I wanted us to move away from this idea of, of being a believer. And, and the reason that I wanted to move us away from that idea is because a believer is simply defined as a person who believes that a specific thing is effective, proper, or even desirable. And I wanted to challenge us that j- just because I believe something to be proper doesn't, and, and desirable doesn't mean that it's going to impact me. Because I know that that eating healthy is desirable. I believe that to be true. But I love bacon nonetheless. Okay? 
I know that pigs are nasty animals, but I think their most amazing creature, a comedian once said, they can take garbage and turn it into bacon, okay? And, but I believe that bacon can be unhealthy for me, but I still ate bacon this morning. So being a believer in something doesn't necessarily compel me to do anything. And I want to challenge you that even Satan believes that Jesus is who he says he is, but that hasn't compelled him to, to kneel down and confess and repent and, and seek forgiveness. So then the next phrase that I, that I hear us in, in, in the Christian community use is a follower. It's not a bad phrase in and of itself. A follower is um, someone, or, uh, someone who is devoted to a particular person, a particular cause, or a particular activity. Now typically a follower will have more motivation than a believer. A person can believe in a cause, can believe in an issue, and take no action whatsoever. A follower tends to have a little bit more buy-in, okay? They, they may, you know, they may observe, they may keep up with what's going on. Occasionally, they may even engage in, in a particular activity. It may be a situation where they follow events that are going on, and maybe when a rally or a fundraiser or something for that event comes around, they engage. But, but on a day-to-day basis, they, they, they're not completely committed or act, active in it. And scripture even talks about that Jesus had many followers. I mean, there were people that followed him around. There's people that followed the Grateful Dead around. There's people that follow other musicians and bands and things like that. And they, they travel all around. I'll give you a really good example. He's not in here. But James Wheeler, um, one, of, one of our members of our family, loves Need to Breathe. I like Need to Breathe. And my wife and I go to concerts with them. And, and if, if they're somewhere close, James loves to go to Need to Breathe. James is an OBGYN. He's not a musician. He's not studying to be a musician. He's not learning to play the drums. He's not secretly sitting in his house at night listening to Need to Breathe. He might sing in the shower for all I know, okay? He, he may, driving down the road when nobody's looking, play a mean air guitar or air drums. Hopefully he's not doing that while he's driving. But, but that doesn't mean that he is compelled to, to do anything about it, right? He simply follows them. But the thing that I want to challenge, them, challenge us about is the word disciple, to become a disciple. We even plaster the word, the, the, the Great Commission, which says, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations. So I want to challenge us about the word disciple for a minute. The word disciple is a follower or a student of a teacher, leader, or philosopher. Now, I know that the definition contains the word follower, but I I want to challenge you that it has a much deeper meaning than that. It's not someone who simply follows a teacher. This term would have had much deeper, greater meaning in its Greek form, in its scriptural reference. A disciple is someone who follows a teacher with the express purpose of becoming like them.
not not for a grade we're not we're not becoming we're not following a teacher we're not allowing this teacher to teach us to educate us to share their wisdom with us because we want some grade at the end of this we are you, this person would have been following a teacher because they were deeply committed to what they were teaching so much so that they wanted to be just like them In Jesus' time, to become a disciple would have had a much deeper meaning and would have had a much greater cost. In Jewish tradition, back then, typically the the way your educational development worked is most people, you started off around around the fifth grade going to going to what would have what we would have probably considered like an elementary school now. And so you would have started off and they would have used the Torah as a way to educate you. So you would have written the Torah, you would have learned to spell and write and do all of that by using the Torah. You would have, you would have memorized the Torah. And then around the age of middle school, you would have advanced into understanding the prophets and the teachings and, and, and much more about the oral tradition of the Jewish culture and their faith and their, their religion. And at some point, once you've completed what the equivalent of what we now consider about maybe elementary to early middle school, at some point then you would have begun to learn a trade. You would have chosen a profession, whether that be a carpenter, a blacksmith, a baker, but you would have chosen some type of profession and you would have become an apprentice within that profession. And so you would have studied under someone who who did that. But for the very select few, for those within their culture who, who demonstrated an unusual capacity for the things of God, they were given an opportunity to go on in their studies and they were given an opportunity to be selected to study under a rabbi. Now the interesting thing about this is no matter how much promise you displayed, You didn't get to choose a rabbi, you had to be chosen. It was something that had to be bestowed upon you. You couldn't go, ooh, pick me, pick me, I want to do this and pursue that. It had to be something that was recognized by the community and then a rabbi had to agree to take you on. So a disciple would have considered it a huge honor to have been selected. But here's the other thing, is most of them would have not just studied to be a rabbi and a teacher, but they would have still continued to study in a, in a secondary craft. So they would have been studying to be a rabbi and a teacher, but they would have also been studying to be a blacksmith. So imagine going to trade school during the day and then turn around and having to go to Bible college at night. And this would have been a lengthy commitment. It could have started as, easy, as young as around 13 or 14 and gone well into, you, didn't be, you weren't considered a master in your craft until you were 30. A 
People dedicated 15 to 17 years of their lives to studying a craft, to studying under a rabbi. And you ate with them, you slept with them, you lived with them, you often left your home to follow them. It was a tremendous commitment to do that. And not only that, but once you were selected by a rabbi, you would take on their yoke, their bent um, in modern terms, we might, we might call it different theologies or different philosophies and things like that. Different denominational ideas. But you would have taken on their yoke and you would have studied under them. Now, why does any of that matter to you and I? First and foremost, I want you to understand that our calling, the place that Christ is bringing us to, is that we are to make disciples. So if I am to make a disciple, I must first be a master at being a disciple. I must begin to master a craft. I feel like the reason that, that the Lord is sharing it with us today is uh, over these last few weeks, I've watched all these events unfold. I've watched all these hurricanes happen and all these floods and this devastation and I've watched the news and, and then the, the tragic shooting in Vegas and, I, and I'm not up here to, to speak politics or um, on, on issues, but I, I want to share with you some of, the, some of the issues that pop up when this happens. So let's just take the, the tragedy and the floods and the hurricanes. Typically what happens, these tragedies begin to unfold, uh, forecasters begin to predict what's going to happen, the government begins to move resources into place to, to deal with the aftermath, and, and no matter what we do in the aftermath, we always fall short. So then this debate begins to happen about why we don't have enough resources, why the government's not doing this, and why the, you know, why the government's not doing that, and, and people aren't doing this, and people aren't doing that. And we, and we begin to have these debates about how, you know, maybe we need more planning, maybe we need more this, maybe we need more that. But what was interesting to me is how it always centers around how the government, how somebody else never does for me what I feel like that they should do for me. And so we try to regulate and, and, and create laws that, that fix these problems, but we never actually address the deeper issue. As the, as the tragedy in Vegas began to unfold, almost immediately the, the, the debate became whether we should have a debate about gun control or not have a debate about gun control, whether we should ban this or loosen this. And, you know, good guys with guns help take down bad guys with guns, but if bad, bad guys had less guns and all this debate, and again... I'm not saying that we shouldn't have these debates. I'm not saying we shouldn't look at, at laws. But at the end of the day, I want to challenge you that we can't legislate morality. We have laws right now that say you can't murder people. But guess what? We still murder people. We have laws that say you can't steal, but we still steal. And I'm not saying we should abandon those laws. I'm not saying that they're bad laws. And I'm not saying that those who break those laws shouldn't be punished or, or imprisoned. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that the deeper issue is... The issue that, that we're dealing with as a society. 
that the world is actually getting worse. If you, if, if you spend some time and read the book, read the book, it, it actually kind of tells you that. It, it doesn't really paint that the picture's getting better, right? It, it actually paints that it's getting, it's getting worse. That there's a breakdown and a destruction of the family and of community and of relationship. I'm so thankful that when Jesus was preaching and, and giving parables that he didn't have to deal with any of this. I'm so thankful that, that he, he was able to talk about parables about kids who were ungrateful and overprivileged and leaving their homes and, and pursuing the things of this world and, and, and wasting all the talents and efforts they've been given. Thank goodness none of that happens now. I'm so thankful that the young people of the day have had to work for everything that they've been given and, and that they don't get participation trophies and that they're, they're not overprivileged. I'm glad we addressed that issue. I'm not making fun of y'all, I'm just... I'm so glad that we no longer have to deal with shrewd managers. That all of our business leaders and community leaders are, are upstanding citizens who always make the right choice and put others first and never have self-seeking interest. I'm so glad that our workers and the people that we interact with are always forgiving. I would hate to have an unforgiven servant. I'm so glad that those that are wealthy and in power give and bless and do the things that they should do and that the, that the burden is not placed on the poor. Jesus' parables spoke to every bit of that and took care of it, right? And you know it didn't. And I know it didn't. Jesus understood the hurt and the brokenness of people. He understood the world in which he lived in and the world in which was coming. He understood that there was going to be tragedy and heartache and death and destruction and storms and famine and floods. And that evil people were going to do evil things. So he called you and I to be his disciples. He established his church. His master plan for bringing light in dark places. For bringing hope in hurting spaces. He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I was amazed when I really started studying on that today at just the depth of what he meant by that. And I was reminded in John of this passage. I want you to think about my yoke is easy. I want to speak to that one first. When he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. He said, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and rightfully so. For that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no one servant is greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed 
if you do them. Jesus' yoke, he says, my yoke is easy. And he summed it up just a few verses later by saying, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciple. I don't question that there doesn't need to be debates. I don't question that there doesn't need to be laws and and things that we need to take a look at. But I challenge you and I that it starts with the yoke in this house. The yoke of Christ that we have agreed as disciples that we are going to take, that we are going to study, that we are going to emulate. That we are going to love one another as much as we love ourselves. And by this, the world will know that we are his disciples. My burden is light. Unlike the rabbis of his day, Jesus wasn't looking at his disciples and calling them to this great lifetime of study and work and internships. No. Because his yoke was easy, his burden became light. He was challenging you and I as we go about our daily lives, as we go about doing the work of our hands, the things that we enjoy doing, the things that we're called to do, the things that we have opportunity to do, that we simply love others as much as we love ourselves. He says to me, Lenny, while you're going about your daily life, while you're mowing the yard at Cedar Grove or running a program or speaking at Crossroads or driving to... Chick-fil-A to get dinner with your kids while you're doing that. If you see somebody hungry, give them something to eat. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. If they're a stranger, invite them them in. If they need clothes, clothe them. If they're sick, look after them. If they're imprisoned, visit them. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we feed you? When were you thirsty? When did we offer you something to drink? When were you a stranger? And he says, I will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you do for the least of these, you have done for me. I want to invite the band up for a minute and I'm going to, while they're coming up, I want to introduce you to a couple people. This is Tony. Tony, will you stand up for me? Tony has no idea, but a few years ago, I was walking down the hall back here on one of the lowest days in my ministry, wanting to quit and give up. I mean, just had had enough. And he had no idea what was going on, but we stopped and had a conversation that day, and he encouraged me in a way that that you can't imagine. Behind him is John. John, if you'll stand up for me. John runs the Chick-fil-A over here on 29 and my wife is a special ed teacher at Robinson and, and she's mentioned all the numerous times in which John has blessed she and her kids and have done some amazing things. I didn't tell Kathy I was going to do this, but Kathy, if you'll stand up. 
Kathy has offered some amazing words of encouragement to me and many others, even in the midst of her own tragedy. She had a daughter that used to attend church here that served as a youth coach and gave of her time and poured into the lives of many people within our congregation. There's one other person I'm going to ambush. Margie, will you stand up? She actually, I actually talked to her. Will you stand up for me? This young lady right here, before I ever met my wife, had an opportunity to invest into her and to speak to her and show her love and kindness and joy, while, all while going about her daily life. Vicki Suarez is sitting up here. I know I saw her two sons. Vicki um, is a retired law enforcement officer from um, Charlotte, Mech. She gave 30 or more years, 30 years of her life dedicated to protecting and serving the people in her community. She also served for a number of years as a youth volunteer here and poured into the lives of young people all while serving as a law enforcement officer, going about her daily job. Anita's sitting over here. Anita, I can't tell you the number of times that this woman has blessed me and poured into me and said kind things. And honestly, I could go around here and pick out a dozen more people, but I didn't, I didn't have time to do that. Stay standing for just a second. If you're near one of these people... And they have in any way ever said a kind word to you, shared love with you, had an impact on you, I want you to stand up. If you're still sitting and any of the other people that have now stood up have said and done anything to impact you, challenge you, I want you to stand up. And I bet if I kept going and I said, okay, now if any of those people, you could stand up, I bet before long the entire congregation in this house would be standing. But here's what I want us to think about. Here's what I want to close with. Man, you're tall. (laughs) Here's what I want to close with. I want to challenge you that we can have all the debates we want. But what's going to change the world is when you and I start doing what we do in here, out there. When we're going about our daily lives and we take an opportunity to invest in someone, to speak life into someone, to speak hope into someone, I think about some of the tragedies that are occurring and and I hear about all the heroic actions where people showed up with boats and they did all these amazing things. And I, I bet the debate would be very different if we as a community said, hey, if the government shows up, great, but I have a plan and a purpose to take people in to do things. And I have no idea what's going to be the outcome of, of the guy in Vegas who did a shooting, but I hear all the time about how mental health and depression and anger and violence is on the rise. But I look at all the young people who are walking around without moms and dads in this world, and I wonder what would happen if you just took a moment to invest in the lives of one of those kids. What kind of change could we make If we embrace the idea that we're a disciple of Christ, a follower and a lover of Jesus, and that we're going to take on his yoke, and that we're going to love others as much as we love ourselves, and we're going to allow that to change our communities, then the entire debate begins to change. The debate's not about what somebody else can do. The debate becomes about what can I do? Those people in that video at the beginning of the message, they saw a problem and they didn't sit around and wonder why there's not enough food in the world or why there's not enough fresh drinking water. They said, what can I do to change that?
believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the work that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things.